Last spring, some of you may recall that, thank you, some of you may recall Swamiji sent a note out saying he was going to write a book called Miracles and Answered Prayers. And at that time, he solicited from those who were willing um, personal stories of examples of God's intervention in their lives. Um, just before he left for India in June, when he, was, he left from our house, he said, I, I've decided I don't really have the time to write this book. And he said, Asha, would you please write it? <laughs> so I need your stories. I know some of you sent them to Swamiji already, and I have everything that was sent to him. But I also want you to think of it in this way, and this is where it, it comes into exactly what we're talking about today. Miracles we think of are very dramatic, but answered prayers are all those times when we thought we were doing it alone, and all of a sudden we realize that we're not alone at all. And some of the most touching stories are the simplest, of just finding out that, oh, how could I forget? Just what Ananta was saying. So I would be grateful if you would send them to me. You can send them through the Ananda Palo Alto website, my own website, Naya Swami Asha. It's not hard to find me. Anywhere in the Ananda system, address it to Asha, it'll find me. Don't bother to, you don't need to take the trouble to make a fine literary work out of it because I have to edit to make it fit the book. So just write out for me the story, the details of the story, and send it off in any form, and I'll be very grateful. And uh, then we can fulfill Swami's wish here. I believe his desire to do this is not merely, oh, let's have another book. But one of the great, yes. <laughs> I think his desire to do it is also that I would get back to my computer and write, but that's personal. But I think also because when he talks about the difficult times that are descending upon our world, thanks to the fact that Lord Kovar is in charge of many of the countries you know, <laughs> of the planet right now, um, it's a very bad time to want to control the external world. One of the characteristics of being a Vaisha, uh, which is the uh, second level of the caste, is the caste system, is that you have the idea in, the, in your mind that your happiness comes from being able to control the world around you. And this is a very bad time to have that Vaisha attitude. This is a very good time to move up to being a Kshatriya, because a Kshatriya understands that I control myself. It's not the world around me that I, I control. It's myself that I have to control. And when Swamiji has been talking about these difficult times that are coming, and he has to talk about them as a disciple because Master talked about them, and he has to speak his guru's teachings. He has no teaching of his own. He can only teach his guru's teaching. And even though after a while, I mean, it's a natural for people to think, I don't want to think about this anymore, Swamiji can't turn his back on his guru's teaching. But the point that he said and Master said as to why these difficult times are coming is a very simple one. The world has forgotten God. Kovar is in charge. And they're all thinking about themselves. Or they're thinking even good people are thinking like Vaishyas. They're thinking that my happiness and my security comes when I can control the world around me. And even people who are trying to make things good are still coming from that point of view. That point of view is that we have enlightened, refined, educated egos, and we have money, and we have influence, and so we're going to use it to create the world that we want. And that world looks better than a world created by really, really terrible people. But nonetheless, if it's a world that's created out of the premise, this is what I want. 
and even more if it's a world that's created out of the premise, this will make me happy. This will make me safe. This will be my security. Well, it's folly. It's progress from just hurting others, but still it's folly and it's not enough. Paramahansa Yogananda did not incarnate on this planet. These five masters did not bring us Kriya Yoga just so that we can be super empowered egos. And look how great we can all just do all these things. Yes, of course, those good works transform our consciousness. But there's a certain point where we want to work directly. We no longer work. We're no longer working just to clean up, as Swami often puts it, this little mud puddle. Or to change, as he says in one of his readings, the flavor of the mess of pottage <laughs> that we eat every day and call it ourselves. This is a revolution. Ananda was more interesting from a revolutionary point of view when you couldn't see it. When it was travel trailers and mud and uh, no money and all those sorts of things. Sometimes, you know, I, I talk about people, you know, in those early years, we didn't have any money. When people say they don't have any money, it means they only have their retirement account. I'm where I live. I know it's not here, but where I live, they only have their <laughs> retirement account. They only have the, um, the equity in their home, you know, and they only have this and they only have that. I said, no, no, I had no money. I had like a jar and in it was money. And when the money was gone, there was no money. <laughs> How can I phrase this? No money. <laughs> when I married David, who had a slightly more sophisticated sense of finance than I did, I came into his house with my little jar in my hand. You know, like then he sort of looked at it and he said, I don't think we need this anymore. And he took it and put it over here. But it frightened me because that was my sense of money, you know. But there's higher realities. When we, when we were first here at Ananda, and it didn't have a physical form, if you tuned into it at all, you had to tune into the vibration of it. You had to feel what was going on here, and it was and is a revolution. Now we're a lot more comfortable. You know, now we have these extraordinarily beautiful homes, paved roads, so many things that are nice, and as Ananta was enumerating, all these things in all these places. But the revolution is exactly the same because the revolution has nothing to do with the form that we've created. The form that we've created is so that it's easier for people to see it. So it's less of a challenge for people to sort of get that there's something going on here. But the revolution is this total shift from what I want and my security coming from when I get everything I want in order. I get to live with my friends. I get to have this nice place to be. I get to be out in the country or in the city or whatever our big list is to realize just what Ananta said, what do I worry about anything? I live for one reality and I live for God. That story that uh, Maria was telling about that disciple stepping into that, that river, the most amazing thing about this path is that you can hear exactly the same words over and over and over again. And then suddenly, one day, an entire new dimension will open out of that. This, is, this path never grows tiresome. It's so fascinating because whatever point you've reached, you're just, you know, part of the way to infinity. And infinity just opens out in front of you. Thinking of the consciousness of that disciple who stepped into that river. And as Maria explained it, as Master explained it, he'd never seen the guru manifest lotuses. He didn't just stand there and say, oh, yes, you step in river and lotuses show up. 
but he had a lifetime. He had a lifetime of understanding that the only reality in this world is the power of God's grace through my master. And therefore, I breathe. I, I breathe. I act. I move in that power. What is there to question? And just to put yourself for a moment in that kind of effortless commitment. Now, there is something really worth having. And imagine what, what, what on earth could ever take that away from you. What circumstance could you imagine? What planet could you go to? What physical trouble could you ever have? What disappointment, what heartbreak could ever take that away from you? If you know that whatever is coming to you is that power of the guru flowing through. And Master makes a point in his chapter in the, the Self-Realization book. The power, the grace of God is your own power. And again, I read that phrase and I thought, I never exactly felt in those words, and I couldn't even for a minute even cognize what he was trying to say. Because you see, our identification is with the ego. And that word I, we can't help ourselves. That word I means all of these limitations. And we tend to think of the spiritual path as a certain kind of behavior. Now I'm nice, now I do these things, now I behave in this certain way. The spiritual path is one word, and that Sanskrit word is moksha. And that word means liberation. That word means freedom. And what it is we're striving for on this spiritual path doesn't look any particular way. Yes, all of Krishna's soldiers look like Krishna. And all of the Ananda devotees, well, they look like Ananda devotees. They're just what they are. You can find them in a crowd anywhere. You can feel their vibrations. But what we're really striving for is that state of absolute freedom, that ability to choose our own state of consciousness. And the, uh, I was so um, impressed on Monday when Jyotish and David were talking, and Jyotish was talking about the entire Patanjali lessons, which were not delivered to the public, but were delivered to those who were already engaged in this teaching Yes, they were about attachment, but they were also about attunement. And every year in our um, Sunday service, we come around to the, the readings, and all of you, many of you have sat through these services for as many decades as I have, and you sort of know the rhythm of them. Oh, here comes this one. And Master says, so-and-so left the path, but it didn't need to it ha happen if they had stayed in tune. And this one couldn't meditate very well, but that's all right. I would meditate for them. And this person attained a very high state of realization, and they got there by attunement. And we use that word attunement a lot, but it's a very, very hard word to understand. Sometimes I go for years, and I don't even want to bring it up because I just don't quite know how to approach it. Not too long ago at a Sunday service, just pure folly struck me, and I said, I'm just going to talk about attunement today. Wish me luck, you know? <laughs> Here we go. Let's see if we can find it somewhere in the ether. But it was so interesting to me when Master says, the grace of God is our own power, as Anant and Maria have both emphasized today. And what we're doing is we are re-identifying, we are disidentifying, so to speak, with our ego self and identifying with what we have always been. You know, that's why Ananta speaks of whatever made me worry. What made me worry is for a moment, oh my God, this is really terrifying. I thought I was in charge. 
Now that is something to scare the bejesus out of you. You know, you want to have sleepless nights? Start thinking about that. You know, just start imagining. I mean, we haven't the foggiest idea how we even got here. You know, just on this planet, you find yourself in this little body, and all of a sudden you're just like this, and you're running all over. And I look at my, I used to keep a picture of myself as a baby on my wall just for fun. You know, there she was. You know, baby's eyes are really big because their eyes are full size, I think, and their heads are little. That's why so many beautiful babies, their their heads and their noses grow around their eyes, and they're not as pretty when they get older. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but there I am. It's a little bald head, very big ears, and these eyes like this. You know, these eyes are just peering out, and it's like, here I come, like that, you know, and that's really what we are, that's what we're doing, we come into this world with this commission from God, this mission, every week at our Sunday service, we say that festival of light, we are on this sacred mission from God, to expand and multiply the gifts you had given us, and to share them, as you have shared with us, for we are a part of all that is, like, how often do we feel that we're a part of all that is? Because we get so habituated by this myic delusion. Why? Who knows? It doesn't really make any difference. The problem is still the same. Who am I? What is real? What am I doing here? And much more profoundly, how do I become free? And free means freedom from fear, freedom from suffering, freedom from disappointment, freedom from all the things that make us other than able to be exactly who we are. And that's the discipline of self-effort that puts us in tune with the grace that's just waiting there. The reason as many as received it, received him could have it, is because all of us are already there. As many as attuned ourselves to him, we simply become that. Now, <clears throat> in one of his commentaries, I seem to become very attractive to all these flies. <clears throat> okay, we'll just do this together, all right? <laughs> In one of his commentaries, uh, expanded commentary on actually last Sunday's Sunday service reading, um, Swamiji says something very, very interesting that I'd never actually heard before because I say, I never heard it before. I've only been doing these readings for 25 years. This is exactly what I mean. Oh, look, somebody put a paragraph into this book. <laughs> you know? <laughs> oh, it does. This is the same falling apart book I've been reading since who knows when, but somebody put a paragraph in it. Isn't that fantastic? Oh, Lord, glory be a miracle, you know, right here. But Ananta was speaking, Maria was speaking about the absolute necessity to attune ourselves, to accept, to be a disciple. Well, Swamiji writes, you know, what is the nature of, of our part of the effort? And the f he gave three points. Some of you who were at Sunday service in Palo Alto last week heard this, but it's worth repeating. He gave three points. The first point was that you have to focus on the desire to be in tune. And that may seem like a no-brainer when you're sitting here, but it's just amazing how many other things take our focus and how absolutely persuasive they are. I was talking to a woman, and she'd suffered a loss. It was the loss of an elderly parent to whom she was very close. And she was sort of going through this process that just, from my point of view, never seemed to end, of grieving for her father. 
and I finally said, for heaven's sakes, the man worked hard his whole life to support your whole family. Give the guy a break. You know, he's done what he came to do. And it was amazing to me that she just sort of looked at me like somehow she felt obligated to grieve. Swamiji made a very interesting statement at one point. He said, one of the ways that Satan captures us is that he persuades us that we have to relate to him, that we have to think about these things, that, oh, a question has arisen in my mind, a feeling has come up, a sense of dismay, you know, like a little bit of, you know, perhaps I need to reflect on this. Swami described it in the very simple context, which is easier to see. He said he was driving across, I think, the Golden Gate Bridge during those years when he was teaching so much in the Bay Area to build this community, to pay for the beginning of this community. He had no time to do anything but that, and he felt a cold coming into him. He felt a, a, a flu, you know, beginning to infect him. And he felt the germs beginning to infiltrate his body. And then with it came the thought that, well, you know, I have been straining myself, so perhaps my constitution's a little weak. You know, maybe I should think about what this might mean. And then he realized that's how Satan gets a hold of us. He tells us that we need to relate to him. And in a very loud voice, which I can't mimic, he just shouted in his car, get away from me, Satan, get out, get out, like that. And in that very moment, the germs just ran, you know? What we have to understand is that everything in this universe is consciousness, and thoughts are not individual. This is an autobiography of a yogi. They are universal. We but receive them and reflect them. So even though we can persuade ourselves that I have these reasons why I have to look at this because all these things happen to me and after all I need to be honest. Yes, yes, yes. Being a disciple precludes that you have the humility and the self-honesty and the courage to know who you are. This is not like a shortcut to just somehow I'm just going to take all these things that I'm afraid to face and I'm going to put them in a basket and I'm going to put them on the altar. I mean, that would be like my taking Bharat's wallet and offering it. You know, this is my offering, Bharat's money. Right? You know, eh, it's, he might be grateful, but God will know what I'm doing. Right? You have to own yourself. You have to be unafraid. But once you have that, believe me, it doesn't take nearly as much attention as you think it takes. You know, Ananta talking about how it gets easier and easier. One of the reasons it gets easier and easier is we become less and less interested in all of the things that distract us. All of those thoughts that come in and say, you must relate to them. Well, I don't have enough money. I don't have enough creative work. I don't have enough this. I have to worry about that. And it comes into us, and it tells us that this is what we need to be thinking about. And it's Satan saying, you must relate to me. So the first effort of self-effort is simply to keep our focus on God, to keep our focus on Guru to keep our focus on being a disciple, to solve every problem, not on its own level, but by finding a way to extricate ourselves from that level, to extricate ourselves from running around and making more phone calls and worrying about things and being anxious. Ananta, for years, has been my mentor in this because I am a more fearful person. I am, you know, a little squirrel. I can get quite wound up about things. And then I think about Ananta, you know, and he, got, he made himself bigger and stronger. 
Ragu lived in our community for many wonderful years. And I used to live in this thought. And you know, I made myself a little body and a, a sort of a high-strung nervous system a little bit. And I used to really love the thought about how sensitive I was. <laughs> Ooh, I really had that one. I was so sensitive. Just, and, and to me, it was a virtue. You know, it wasn't like something to be overcome. It was a virtue. Then Raghu and I did an affirmations class together, and he was choosing the affirmation. We were sitting in the front of the class, and I'm sitting next to him, and he has this big, as you all know, big bass voice and this large, strong body. And he, I can't remember. He's, the affirmation he chose, I didn't even know it was in the book. I am powerful, I am strong, I am free, like this. And immediately my mind said, I am weak, I am small. <laughs> It's just like I was amazed. And I thought to myself, baloney. You know, I have the infinite force of the universe within me, and the only reason I think I don't is because I've spent so much time ignoring it. The grace of God is within us at all times. And I loved, I'll never forget it, and I'm eternally grateful. I just sat next to Raghu, and I tried to make myself as big as him. I am strong, I am powerful. And you know, it just, we focus on the right thing. And we recognize that there is simply no point in focusing on anything else. That's our self-effort. It isn't, that's the secret, you see. That's why it's not hard work. It's not slaving away and struggling and worrying about all these things. It's just remembering. It's just smriti. It's always remembering divine memory. Oh, I thought I was weak. I thought I was helpless. I thought I had to worry about all these things, but you know what? I don't. Om Guru, Om Guru, Om Guru, Om Guru. That's the self-effort is to just release the identification with limitation to hold the identification on the power that is in us. It's an amazing thing to realize. You see, our self-realization, our perfection, our samadhi, our oneness, our looking master right in the eye and being exactly who he is, is there already. That's so remarkable because Maya makes, it, makes us think it's somewhere else. It's coming in time and space some other incarnation, somebody bigger than me, somebody healthier, somebody stronger, somebody more talented. But it isn't. It's just a question of where we look. So the first discipline is to always bring your consciousness back to that, to that single thought, the grace of God is my own power, not I, the ego but I, the one who is that power already. This is why Swami can say, that's why Jesus said to his disciples, do not call me great, do not call me master, that which I do ye shall do and greater things. And it was not humility, is not humility to say, oh no, Lord, no, no. That's just me saying, I'm so weak, I'm so sensitive. No, we have to say yes, Lord, but not the I that we normally think of, but the I that we are now concentrating on, Om Guru, Om Guru, Om Guru. The second point that Swami tells us is we have to offer ourselves to God with wholehearted devotion. This is a battlefield. Just face it, wholehearted devotion. We are devoted to many things other than our spiritual path. And it's so confusing because once you catch this wave, 
You say things that are not always comprehensible or attractive to others. Oh, yes, the root of all problems is desires. Just give up desires. I tried to persuade a relative of mine once that desires are not really fulfilling. You get what you want. It doesn't fulfill you. She had perfect worldly wisdom. That's why it's so important to keep on wanting new things. <laughs> Whoa, somewhere we took a left turn off of where I was going. You know, and, and for some reason, newbies to the spiritual path, or some newbies to the spiritual path, just think that telling people to overcome and relinquish their desires is like how to win them. Like, no, no way on this one. But the reason is because we think that the opposite of desire is deprivation. We think that if we don't get our desires, we feel deprived. And nobody wants to feel deprived. Oh, welcome to the spiritual path in which you get to feel inadequate all the time. You know, like very, we would be even smaller than we are. Believe me, and maybe we are because that's what people think, you know? But the opposite of, of desires, of being held by your desires, is freedom. So imagine the fulfillment of your desire. And what it really gives you, you see, is a state of relaxation, of contentment. But freedom is what we're really seeking. Imagine if you were never made restless in the first place. You see, that's what we're seeking. I, I see Krishnadas sitting here, and I remember a story in um, the book I wrote about Swami Kriyananda, Swami Kriyananda as we have known him. By the way, if you go to Naya Swami Asha, I've put the audio book of that book up there as a free download. Even I, who wrote the book and knew every word in it and recorded it, was deeply moved by hearing it read <laughs> because the feeling comes out of it in a way. But Krishnadas had an experience, and I hope you weren't anonymous in that book, Krishnadas, so let's just <laughs> hope that this is okay here. <laughs> if you were, Soma, well, there it goes. <laughs> but he talked about an experience that he had where he was going toward the light, where he was clunked on the head and started to leave the body. And he was going into this light and he was in the presence of an angelic being and he described it so vividly. He said, it wasn't as if my desires, he said he experienced the state of pure desirelessness is how he described it. And he said, it wasn't even as if my desires were fulfilled. It was that before they could even arise in my mind, they were vaporized by the presence of that light. Because when we are exactly who we are in our, the full potential of that grace of God, we are utterly free and utterly content. You see, that's the one. All of this desire is the duality of maya. We're always transitioning from one point to another. Everything is finally in order, and then the wrong president gets elected, right? Everything is finally in order, and then somebody we love dies. Everything is finally in order, and then... We, f we fall off our motorcycle or something like that, right? <laughs> you know? <laughs> and all of a sudden, in a heartbeat, everything is different. Because that's we're always in this state of movement, and that's where all the desires come from. But freedom is when we're always standing exactly where we are supposed to be. Over the many years of opportunity that I and others have had, by the grace of God, to be in Swamiji's company, it, one of the many, many lessons that have come from being in his presence is this absolute sense that I am exactly where I'm supposed to be and nothing else matters. I mean, to a fault. Responsibilities, duties, schedules, places that things you're supposed to do, obligations, gone. 
just gone. You're just right there. And you're right there because you're in his consciousness. And his consciousness, he's in tune with master. What Swamiji is in tune with is what we're all trying to be in tune with, which is the guru. To be in tune with him is to be in tune with master. And to be in that state where you're not battling your desires, you're not fighting against what you want and hoping that God will give to you, the thought, the desire never even arises. There was this woman who lasted a short time in our community, but she was a classic example of missing the point. She had the opportunity, this was many years ago, she had the opportunity to spend time in Swamiji's company, and after a while she decided she didn't really want to be with him anymore because, and she began to decline invitations to satsang and so on, because when she was with him she couldn't remember her problems and she was afraid she wouldn't be able to work on them. Satan persuades us that we have to relate to him. And even when we're lifted out of that state, that thought lingers. So we have to maintain our focus and we have to offer ourselves wholeheartedly with our whole hearts in devotion to that cause. And even if it's only an affirmation, even if it's only I want to want this, it's all a matter of direction. We can't help where we are right now. As I think it was Jyotish or Devi who said earlier, all of our likes and dislikes from all our previous lifetimes have created this karma that put us in a certain point. We can't do anything about that now. It would have been good to think about it earlier, but we didn't, okay? <laughs> but Dr. Peter assures us, you know, it just takes, what was it, not very many days before the good old brain, 14 days before the brain gets on our side, right? So the future is in our hands. But what's important is that we focus and that we offer as much of our heart as we own. You know, as I was speaking about Bharat's wallet, we can't give something we don't own yet. If parts of us are still owned by our desires, if parts of us think that this is an interesting philosophy, I'm going to wait and see, you know, you can't really put that part on the altar yet, but whatever you can, you know, whether it's 15 cents, whatever it is, gather all of it up and offer as much as you can wholeheartedly. That's the second part of our self-effort to awaken, to attune to this power within us. The third is extremely interesting, and I was very touched because it was what Davy talked about on the first day. We must have faith in the unconditional love of God for us. I was fascinated by that. This is another category of self-effort, bear in mind. We must focus on God, we must offer ourselves wholeheartedly, and we must have faith in God's unconditional love for us. I, I, Swamiji has often told us the story of when he first went to Master that first day, September 12, 1948, and he knelt in front of Master, and Master said, I give you my unconditional love. Now, we hear these stories many, many times, some of us, and we read them in the books, we hear them spoken. Again, thousands probably of times I've heard that. And Swami always tells it. You know, he, he always tells us that story. And lately, he can hardly get through that story because when he gets close to it, all of this feeling just wells up in him. And what I, I saw, have seen in these last months, this last year especially, whenever he tells that story, he knows what that means. He really knows what that means. All of us, speaking for myself, I would like to know what that means. I would like to, to understand 
what that promise is. And Swami doesn't tell us that story, as he himself asserted recently. He said, when I talk about these things that happened to me with Master, there's no part of me that's standing up and saying, well, you know, so here I am, Kriyananda, and all these things happened. He doesn't identify with Kriyananda. These are simply things that happened. As Haridas once put it beautifully, he said, something inspiring happened, and I got to be there. So he described his own self-expression, you know, because we don't identify. Imagine, we're talking about this as an ideal, but what we see, it, we see it manifested in Swamiji, and if we want to understand it in ourselves, we have to know what we're looking at. We can't apply to him the same narrow confines of how I would feel if I were saying that. You know, almost the complete indifference he has to the way he just expresses these things that others might think were self-aggrandizement. You know, how could he possibly be doing that? He must be doing something completely other. And so when he tells us, Master saying, I give you my unconditional love. And Swami then is looking out at us with those same eyes. When I actually asked myself, someone came to me once and in, in tears, it was very poignant, saying that just they had a very hard time believing in God's love. And I thought for a moment, I said, I don't. And then I said, because Swami has been my friend all these years. I've experienced it. And when I think a little farther, you know, not everyone anymore because Swami's 85 will be able to get it directly from him. But look at the way we love each other here. Look at the friendship that's here. Whether you're new or have been here for decades, look at the friendship that's here. Can you doubt God's love? when you see it shining from the eyes of everyone. When Aaron was standing here singing on Monday night and he was so beautifully singing, uh, God, uh, Love is a Magician. He just had that song in his bone marrow too much because he just lost the capacity to go forward. The piano was trying to sort of figure out what to do and he was sort of trying to figure out what to do and I think it started over here somebody in the audience started carrying the song for him. And it, it spread, I was in the back, it spread across like that. Just perfectly sung. It's like, okay, Aaron, you've lost the ability to sing it for a moment, so we'll just sing it for you. And we all just sang it for him, and then sort of toward the end, Aaron came back again and joined in with us. Build on what you experience. The reason I'm asking and the reason I understand why Swami wants us to write about our answered prayers. Master says, we all have an enormous wealth of experience, but we don't focus on it. We focus on something else. And our part of self-effort is to focus on that and to believe, to have faith in God's unconditional love for us. Just imagine if you are loved unconditionally by an infinite power. And the reason Master tells us that the grace is inside is so we'll realize nothing can ever separate us from this. There's no whimsical destiny here. The only place God can be realized is within ourselves. The right way to do it is love, Master says. The right place is within ourselves. If we know and have absolute faith that God loves us unconditionally, 
How could anything that happens ever touch our security, our joy, our freedom? You see? That's really all there is to it. And in the very end, this top title, the way we've put it, the way we even put it in Master's book, Self-Effort versus Grace, there is no versus. Self-effort is grace. Grace is self-effort. And the effort we make has nothing to do with the ego and its power. It has to do with our complete self-offering and our understanding that God is there for us beyond imagination of expectancy. Through Swamiji and through our own life experience, Master has given us his unconditional love. Remember what Master then said to Swami? Will you love me as I love you? Will you also give me your love? That's our part. God bless you.